Welcome to the Think Differently and Deeply podcast series. My name is Glenn Whitman, and I direct the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School. This series features authors from the recently published volume of the CTTL's internationally recognized publication, Think Differently and Deeply, which has been distributed to over 10,000 teachers, school leaders, and policymakers worldwide. Today, I'm joined by Dan Willingham, a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and author of Why Don't Students Like School? When Can You Trust the Experts? and The Reading Mind. Did I get that right? You have three books or more than three books? I have more than three books. Good. I just want, that's good. Okay, I just wanted, I didn't want to shortchange you. Yeah. Uh, Dan's Why Don't Students Like School was a foundational text for the CTTL and my personal journey as a research-informed teacher. So welcome, Dan. Thanks for giving us this time. Glad to be here. So uh, uh, lots of questions for you, um, but I, I think the first one that keeps coming back to me, because I've had the privilege of reading your work over the years and seeing you present in a variety of venues, is why are you so committed to presenting and writing for educators? Yeah, it, it, that, that is not the way my journey began, sure. for sure, right? I, I started life as a memory researcher, and it was about 10 years post-PhD that I started um, thinking about problems. I mean, I had absolutely no interest in education beyond the, own, the classroom teaching that I did as a college professor. Um, I got interested largely by accident uh, when I was invited to address a bunch of educators uh, and, and rashly said that I would do that and then realized I had absolutely no idea what I was gonna say to educators. So what I did was I pieced together some stuff pretty much from the uh, introduction to cognition class that sophomores at the University of Virginia uh, would take with me. And I was uh, really dejected just before I was going to give that talk. And in fact, my wife was with me uh, in the hotel because she's a teacher. I had invited her to come along on this particular trip. And I, I, half an hour before the talk, I said, don't come. Like, don't come and see me talk, because this is just going to be a disaster. This is going to be a train wreck. And the reason I thought it was going to be such a disaster was I didn't think there was anything I could possibly say that teachers didn't already know about how kids learn. And I was astonished to find that that was not the case, that some of what I knew about memory and attention, um, problem solving and decision making was, was new to teachers, and they found it really interesting and potentially useful to their practice. Um, and so that told me that um, I did have a contribution to make, and the venue, so to getting to your question, the right venue was to talk with teachers directly. I couldn't see a lot of value in writing for an academic audience and publishing in academic journals that very few people read. I was comfortable <laughs> doing that when I was a memory researcher. Sure. People always joke about like, oh, you write stuff and it ends up in these journals. It's like, that's true. Very, very few people read it. It's highly specialized. And so only people who are interested in this one little technical aspect of memory will ever look at this journal article. And I was totally comfortable with that. But this was stuff that I wanted a lot of people to know about, and so academic journals was clearly not the way to go. And so what I needed to do was to try to talk to teachers and, and write for teachers directly. You, you know, I'm interested in that last point, because um, I know there's a, not just you, but a lot of university professors and researchers are doing work that would be interesting and potentially valuable to educators. Is there a point in the in being a university professor in the university world that you're then allowed to write for the non-university audience or the non-scholarly journal? Yeah, 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 I hear what you're saying. It depends on which institution okay. you're, uh, you're affiliated with. So there are some where that, it, that sort of activity is highly valued, um, especially a teaching college 
would probably value that type of translational work. Uh, a, a research institution like my institution, it's, it's really, that's not really the understanding of what you're going to do. Uh, communicating knowledge, translating knowledge is uh, not the activity of choice. Instead, it's creating new knowledge. That's what research is really about. Um, I will say that my home institution, University of Virginia, has been extraordinarily supportive Great. of what I've been doing, and, and the, they, they get it, Great. so to speak. Yeah. So just before we sat down, you had delivered today uh, two uh, deep dives around the reading mind at our Science of Teaching School Leadership Academy. And I was thinking about something you just said, that when you first presented that, that pre presentation that you thought was going to be a flop, Yes. You were sort of surprised of, of how you can actually add new knowledge in, in how kids learn. Do you see now over the years you've been doing this, and I've sort of followed you, is, is the gap closing? I mean, do you have any sense that teachers are know a little more in this field? Oh, I think they absolutely do. I think there's much. So I started in about 2002. Right. I think there's, um, first of all, there are many more people, my perception anyway, it's not like I have made a systematic study of this, but my, my perception is that there are many more people like me who are interested in bringing research to teachers and teachers are, I mean, you know, teachers are learners. Teachers got into this business because they, <laughs> yes, we are. They, yeah, they like learning new things. So, I mean, teachers are more than just open to it. I mean, teachers are like really eager and interested for the most part in, um, in learning about this stuff. The, the problem that I've gotten interested in is now sort of circling back to that original conference I went to in 2002. And, you know, at the time I said, all right, so a bad idea is to try and change the way teachers are, are prepared um, because I have no standing. I mean, I have no say, like, who would listen to me? You know, this, sure. this you know, cognitive psychologist say, like, oh, you know what? I have a great idea about the way teachers ought to be uh, prepared. That's ridiculous. Um, but now I'm, I'm circling back and starting to look at that and, you know, asking the question, why is it that even today, um, when you said our teachers, uh, has the gap closed? I would say yes, but the gap is closed mostly in terms of in-service teachers. Okay. Uh, so there's more PD, and and also many more teachers are themselves sort of you know figuring this out on their own and doing reading and and uh, coming to conferences. So I've gotten interested in why it is that teachers coming out of teacher preparation programs don't know more of this content. Gotcha. When we started this work, I remember very distinctly uh, we were a, a, a university researcher being very worried that a novice teacher, in terms of their understanding of how research is done might misuse the research or might overuse or overstate a strategy. Do you, do you have any concerns when you share sort of research-informed strategies with teachers or school leaders? So uh, I, I know what, um, what that mystery person, now you've, of course, made me intensely <laughs> curious to know who it was. Uh, I will not out anybody. No, I, I, I understand. Um, uh, but, I th you know, whoever that person was, I, I, I understand the concern that you certainly can... Um, misconstrue or better put misapply cognitive cognition i mean cognit cognitive psychologists break down mental processes into their simplest form because that's what scientists do and so when we look at memory we're looking at memory 
uh, independent of attention, independent of motivation. And we set up the experimental conditions so that attention and motivation are out of the picture. We'll do things like put people in a quiet room where they can't be distracted. We'll pay people to make sure that they stay on task. <laughs> right. Um, so we're looking at this pr uh, thing in isolation. And classrooms, of course, are not controlled environments. They're like everything is free to vary in a classroom. So this is where one's, one source of possible concern is that how do you apply something from the laboratory in the classroom? And a lot of times, you know, sometimes we've got experiments that have been conducted in classrooms. People have gone out of the lab. Um, other times we don't. And so that that is a real source of concern. I think uh, the truth is I think most teachers who are in this game and thinking about these issues, they're sensitive to that. They get it that a lab is not the same thing as a classroom. Um, and they're sort of watching out for it. So I, I, I guess I would say uh, I see what the concern is. Um, I don't I don't think it's a huge problem. Good. Well, that's reassuring. In, in your forward, and I, again, I appreciate you writing the forward for our publication, um, you know, you, you use the word, there might be some must-have principles or must-have research-informed strategies that we sh educators should be aware of. Yeah. Um, certainly, they're context-dependent, kid-dependent, school-dependent, you know, culturally dependent. Uh, are there ones that you feel so strongly about to say, look, really every teacher and school leader probably should have this on their radar. They might work with for their kids, they might not, but it just should be on their radar. So I would say that um, the the I think there are some must-haves. This was a this was an idea introduced that um, by myself and David Daniel, sure. a collaborator of mine at, at James Madison yep. University. We wrote this article where we said there are must-haves and then there are could-dos, both of which. <laughs> Um, uh, research can can help us figure out. And so the must-haves are things, I, I would say they're uh, ideally, and, and this maybe is a risky thing to say, but I think they're maybe not context-dependent, they're not kid-dependent, they're so universal that the only thing they really depend on is values. So given that you want this to happen, this is a must-have. So uh, an example that, that I would give is uh, content knowledge and reading. If you want children to be successful readers, they must have some domain knowledge of whatever the text is about. Uh, another must-have would be practice in, in the context of uh, becoming proficient in a skill. So these are must-have in the sense that you know you you can try to work around it and say I'm going to try and make a child really good at reading no matter what the content of the text is and uh, the the domain knowledge isn't going to matter I don't I don't think it's going to happen. Gotcha. I'm curious. A theme of the academy today was a lot about measurement, right? So a teacher or a school leader gets hooked on hey maybe we have to do feedback better or assessment better or you know I, I, you know and, and I know Dylan Williams talking about this today to teachers. What should we be trying to measure in schools from your perspective? Uh, instructional variation. Is it all of it? Uh, where would you sort of suggest we should be thinking in terms of measurement? So, I'll, I mean, I'll say something, but you're probably much better off asking Dylan this question okay. than you are me because <laughs> I, I, I don't. I got to get him agree to do a podcast after you. <laughs> okay, uh, I don't. I, I don't consider myself very knowledgeable about measurement. I mean, I, I agree that measurement is absolutely vital because as you're trying to move towards a goal, how can you know whether or not you're moving towards the goal and, uh, unless you're taking, uh, taking some readings along the way to sure. see whether or not you're making progress? Um, so that's the, that's the first principle I think of when we say, what is, it that, what is it that we want to measure? The question is, what is it? That's answered by asking the question, what is it you want to change? Right. 
I do think people think quite, but they think simultaneously quite narrowly about measurement. So they think about achievement and they think about achievement in uh, a pretty narrow context. They, they don't think about self-efficacy. I mean, in reading in particular, you know, how do kids view themselves as readers? To me, that's an enormously important question and is actually a goal that many schools have. Like we want uh, kids to value reading and see, have a self-image of themselves as readers. But that brings us to the second point. It's like, yes, you want to inculcate that in kids. You want kids to be creative too. It's like, do you know how to measure those things? Most often the answer is no. No, right. Yeah, and so that, that raises the question, well, is there any point in, in administering a measurement to kids when you don't have very much confidence in the measurement? Right. So, you know, I want to go back to your writing because uh, I know it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> nice. Uh, well, maybe I should ask you, you know, I, don't, I, I know I had dinner with you last night, but what are you writing now? Uh, I am working on a book. It's, it's really about memory, um, but it's more, more broadly conceived. It's really about uh, a kid, a, a child would say it's about studying. Uh, and this is the first book I've written that is going to be directed primarily to students, although there'll be sections of it for teachers as well. Fantastic. So it's really, it's really about self, the way I would describe it, they wouldn't describe it this way, it's about self-regulation of memory. The striking um, fact to me is that our expectations of children's ability to self-regulate their own cognition, uh, those expectations are close to zero at pre-K, as they should, and what, what I, as they should be. And what, what I mean by that is teaching is wholly the responsibility of the, or, or better put, the child's learning is wholly the responsibility of the teacher. If the child's not learning, we would never say that four-year-old is doing something <laughs> sure. wrong. We would say the teacher is not setting up the right environment for the child. By the time kids are in grade 12, we have much higher expectations, and the child is responsible for a lot of their own learning. We send difficult texts home with the child with the expectation that they will comprehend it, and if they don't comprehend it, they'll be resourceful in figuring out what to do about it. We expect them to commit things to memory. We expect them to um, know how to know when they're prepared for a test. Um, and for most kids, they get no instruction between pre-K and grade 12 sure. in how to handle those things. And it's easy to see how that could slip through the cracks because it's not obviously anyone's job. And it's a process that changes over the years as our expectations change. Uh, and we know this because uh, there's been a lot of work uh, with college students, include, and mostly with very successful college students, asking them how they handle these sorts of self-regulated learning tasks. Sure. And for the most part, they're not very successful. And we say, well, why, why do you do it that way? And the, you know, did someone tell you to do it that way? And the answer on the part of students almost always is, no, I just sort of figured it out myself. Right, right. So my goal is to write a book that will tell them what to do. So, uh, Which is I, what I always do. I tell people what to do. There, there you go. And I, will, I can attest to this. Um, you know, certainly my colleagues at St. Andrews have, have read a lot of your stuff. They, they, a lot of them follow you on Twitter. You know, when you write, you know, what is, because I've had a privilege of writing a book with my colleague Ian, what is your hope for your writing? Obviously, we want it to be read, but you'll, you know, in terms of what do you hope a teacher who reads, whether it's uh, your, your, your book or an article or tweet, might do with that information? It, it depends on the book. Okay. I mean, for the most part, um, the most broadly conceived, um, this gets at what I see as the relationship between basic scientific findings and the application of those findings. 
so I'm usually very guarded in uh, the claims I make about the usefulness of findings from science. I think there's a relatively small number of things that we understand fairly well that I think are useful and interesting for teachers to know. Uh, the application of those is still another step. The application is usually not transparent. Right. And so what I try and do uh, is summarize the content that I think we know fairly well, and occasionally content that we actually don't know very well, but is of uh, urgent interest to teachers and they really want to know about. So I summarize uh, what what we, what is known, and then you know end up concluding we don't know that much, um, and then with some ideas and thoughts on what I think it might mean for the classroom, I uh, I don't think I ever tell teachers what to do because I don't think scientists can do that. Fantastic, you know I have a question. I got I've just totally uh, thought about this and re was reminded of this. So I had a, a participant in our academy asked me they bought three books of yours recently. They brought, uh, why, why, why Don't Students Like School, The Reading Mind, and uh, When Can You Trust the Experts? Okay. And they asked me, and they asked Glenn, hey, did you read the books? Yes, I've read the books. Uh, she asked, is there a, an order I should read the books in? And I thought it was a really interesting question. Um, I'm not too sure if you've ever thought of it. Uh, I know what the order I did because I did as they were published. Um, but any, any thought of that question in case no. they're listening, hopefully? Like, I'm so happy when anyone pays any attention to anything I write <laughs> that, like, the idea of, you know, a desirable sequence with on the assumption that people are going to read multiple things. No, I have, I have absolutely no <laughs> there idea. There you go. There, there you go. Uh, the Dan Willingham trilogy, though, right? It'll be packaged of some sort. Perfect. Uh, perfect. Uh, uh, one interesting thing, you know, uh, we feel privileged, the center feels privileged to be able to engage with university professors, you know, like yourself. And, and others around the world. But it, it, it's not an easy lift, so to speak. You know, uh, pre-collegiate schools, you know, K through 12 schools and universities and university professors collaborating seems to be harder than I would like to think it should be. Um, and I'd just like your perspective on that because you obviously, I'm from the K through 12 side, you're from the university side. I, is there a, a potential or a way to start thinking about universities and schools collaborating more? This has been of interest um, to some people on the university side, I know. Right. Um, and they, they've got you know, different terms they use for it, that, that, these, that these could be um, different terms for what the collaboration could be. Uh, the vision is a flow of information in both directions, that this would be a research partnership as well as a practice partnership. So in other words, what university uh, folk researchers would get out of it is a collaborator um, who would both, where, where the school could potentially be a laboratory where you would be uh, conducting experiments and the uh, teachers at the K-12 in institution would also be partners in research. Um, what exactly the uh, the teachers are, are supposed to be getting out of this deal is sometimes a little <laughs> right. less clear I can imagine. to university professors. Um, but I think the idea is that there would, uh, the hope is that there would be some uh, intellectual content that the university professors have that would be of interest to teachers, that they would um, uh, know some stuff that would be useful to teachers. So I, I hear this idea and I'm, uh, 
it's not a it's not a literature that I pace closely. So there there it probably exists in places and I don't know about it. But it's more often something that I hear about than I see on the ground. Yeah, no, we we've been trying to crack the code and we've been fortunate, uh, but it, it it hasn't been as easy um, as we want. Um, what, what do you where do you see uh, this the next sort of frontier for this work around and they, and they call it a lot of things right they call it educational neuroscience science of learning mind brain education science what's the next frontier for this work in terms of research that um, you know I, I know there's a lot of interest even at our academy this week people have asked I got a lot of questions around mirror neurons right uh, and I know I actually don't know a lot about the research. But are there frontiers and areas of research that would be next that we should really be exploring and going deeply in from your perspective? Uh, you know, it, I think that's like trying to predict the stock market. There you go. And you're not good at that? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm okay. not. <laughs> I just want to know. <laughs> no, I'm not good at that. Um, no, I, and I, I think it's, you know, uh, research is subject to fads. There's absolutely no doubt. People get excited about something. Or... Um, something becomes a funding priority for a large foundation or a federal agency, right. and so people start chasing money. Um, and those those things are so idiosyncratic, it's it's very hard to call. I, I agree. Well, I love the opportunity to speak to you. Um, I, I really appreciate uh, you being part of our uh, faculty for our Science of Teaching School Leadership Academy. Uh, and selfishly, I, I've, I've learned a lot by following and reading your stuff I, um, and sharing it with my colleagues. So, uh, Dan, I really thank you for this time. And uh, let's eat some pulled pork if that's, if that's <laughs> what's being offered for dinner tonight. <laughs> thank you. Glenn. Thanks, appreciate Dan. It. Much Thanks. appreciated. At St. Andrews, we often end our classes with some form of exit ticket or active retrieval of information that was a focal point of the day's class. We know from mind, brain, and education research that if students don't start recalling or using their learning, they are bound to forget it. So in that research-informed spirit, here is your exit ticket. Dan mentioned that he's working on a book on memory, so this exit ticket will test your memory. What must-have research-informed principles or strategies that Dan suggests teachers and school leaders should be aware of? Tweet your response to at the CTTL. We look forward to seeing what you come up with. The Think Differently and Deeply podcast is a production of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Potomac, Maryland, where the mission is to know and inspire each child in an inclusive community dedicated to exceptional teaching, learning, and service. Each podcast is produced by Kirsten Peterson and mixed by Jordan Yantz. Jordan also composed our theme music, which we lovingly call The Growth Mindset. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and more. And while you're there, leave us a review. This active reflection will embed what you've learned from this podcast into your long-term memory.